and welcome to episode 35 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook, your host as always, and I have a special guest in the building. Today we will be looking at African and Caribbean solidarity in Britain and on a global scale, and I am joined by the fantastic and wonderful Shayan Matiluko, who is a journalist, writer, and researcher in law, politics, race, and history. Her brain, I don't know how it all fits, because she is a fantastic um, in all the things she's written and studied, um, and she's currently studying law, although recently did a master's um, at LSE where her dissertation focused on black women in Britain um, and how they tied their support for decolonization in Africa and the Caribbean to fight for civil rights in the UK. So she's got all that legal knowledge. We've got this history. We've got decolonization, activism, black women, Britain, Africa, Caribbean. There isn't a more perfect guest for this episode, let's be honest. Um, so welcome, Shayan, to the History Hotline. <laughs> Oh, thank you for having me and thank you for your kind words. No, no worries at all. Oh, it's my pleasure to have you here. Um, So I think we should launch straight in because I know we've got so much planned to talk about today. Um, But we're kind of coming from a place of, you know, Black Britain. What does that mean? Who is included in that? What's the kind of issue with Black solidarity, with Africans and Caribbeans you know who are we referring to when we speak about Africans and Caribbeans because there's dominant groups that are often kind of taking over the narrative so we're going to be looking at all that kind of thing today but let's get to know you a little bit better first so you know you've done a law degree you are legally minded shall we say (sighs) but then you've gone on to LSE to do you know your historical study um, and your historical master's so you know why do you love history why is that something you're so kind of keen to study? I guess I just wanted a deeper insight into who I am and who we are as a community, as a Black British community or communities. I think at school I really didn't learn anything um, about Black British people and my parents come from Nigeria and I didn't really know too much about Nigeria. So I guess it's like the classic diaspora child of like not knowing where you belong. Um, So I wanted to find out more about that. Definitely. No, that makes sense. Um, it is, I definitely think, the case for the diaspora when we're dropped off in these foreign lands trying to kind of figure out where we fit and, and where we've come from and what that means for us. So, yeah, makes sense. Um, and your favourite historical time period or periods across any country? I think I like the 1960s the most because I think that was a, like a uh, an era of great hope, I think, for black communities globally, thinking about yeah. uh, civil rights in the United States decolonization in Africa and the Caribbean and even um, civil rights in the UK with like the race relations acts I think the 1960s must have seemed like a really utopian time to be living in yeah absolutely I think it's really interesting as well and maybe because you've come from a different perspective into history I feel like your thoughts are quite broad in a really nice way across the kind of global black struggle for black liberation Whereas I think when we do history through like undergrad, we're taught to be quite narrow in our focus. You look at a specific time in Britain or a specific city, maybe or a place. But I really like that your mind is kind of casted out so widely. And we're now enabled to look at the kind of intricacies of like the global struggle for black liberation, which I think some of the kind of greatest historians like Walter Rodney, who we will speak about later, is just does so brilliantly. So I love that. I'm so excited. Um, And your current research interests, kind of things you do, what are they? I'm really interested in researching more about colonisation and decolonisation 
in Africa and the Caribbean and also it's, it's similar to what I did at LSE really also uncovering more histories of people in Britain who yeah. contributed to those struggles as well because I think um, just all of that history I think is not that well known about so I hope to write more about it and help promote that history more definitely absolutely I love that so today as we said we're talking about Afro-Caribbean African and Caribbean solidarity um we've got a lot of touch points um and we're going to be jumping chronologically through time very quickly so please forgive us we will try and touch base with dates as frequently as possible just to make sure that you're sticking with it but we just wanted to take an overarching view of of solidarity kind of in this country to start with um between africa and the caribbean now just for historical context africa is obviously the continent from which black people are birthed and i use black there in the term of having a certain amount of melanin and being um you know of that people and through the transatlantic slave trade um from west africa for the most part um enslaved people were taken to the caribbean and then mixed with the native people there, the Arawaks, the Tainos, um, the Amerindian peoples, and also the European colonizers that were there from the Dutch regions, whether that was, yeah, France, England, um, all the different colonizers in the Caribbean. So you've got this kind of mix of different cultures and peoples in the Caribbean that forms, yes, black people, um, who were once African, who are now disconnected from that African culture, who have taken bits of language, who have taken bits of food and tradition and religion, um, but are unfortunately now separate in terms of culture. So we are kind of talking about one in the same people if we're looking at maybe base genetics, but culturally, which I would say is a kind of main reason for the way we are, you know, how we're raised um, and maybe our culture and our families, we are essentially different. Um, and so then we fast forward to the Windrush generation per se. Um, and this is a big fast forward because we've just gone from transatlantic slavery <laughs> to the Windrush generation. But we start to see movement of Caribbean people um, in bigger numbers. And then later on, people from Africa. If you listen to the two episodes ago, we did um, Nigerian migration into Britain on this podcast. Um, and I had another guest. So if you want to hear more about that, you can listen to that. Um, and past episodes, you've looked at the Windrush generation, but now you have a kind of Britain as another melting pot of people from the Caribbean who are a mixture of all the people I mentioned before and people from Africa and West Africa mainly, but, you know, not to exclude other other parts of Africa as well as a continent who are now all mixed in Britain and struggling for racial equality in different and the same ways who come with different political identities. And I want to stress that. Different religions, different, you know, beliefs about how they should live or how they would like to live in this country. And so that's kind of where we begin. And something we discussed earlier is the fact that with things like the Sewell report, it seems as if we're being pitted against each other. You know, like that report suggested that if black uh, African students could do so well in a British classroom, why then could black Caribbean boys not do as well? This idea of, you know, well, what's gone wrong for you, Caribbeans? Um, you know, why have uh, people from West Africa managed to, to do so well here, per se, um, disregarding class um, and all of the factors? Um, but we feel like this conversation needed to happen because we often look at like, you know, oh, why, why don't Jamaicans and Nigerians like each other? But 
we're here to look at solidarity today. Sorry, I feel like I've spoken for about 15 years. Um, Right, even on that report, it was actually interesting what they said about um, Black Africans versus Black Caribbeans, because I think um, we, for some reason, our political discourse in the UK, we think that Caribbean people are all the same and African people are all the same, even though there are so many different countries. Absolutely. And even within that, like African groups, I think it's the Institute for Race Relations a while ago, they did a study showing that there's actually different levels of attainment depending on which part of Africa people come from. So yeah. you can't just say, oh, all Africans are doing well at school because actually that's, <laughs> that's actually not the case. Exactly. Um, it's a a blind discussion they're blind leaving the blind well yeah so why we're here today to discuss all these things um I thought we'd start with Marcus Garvey okay if that's okay with you and Amy Ashwood Garvey if we want to go there as well I think it's probably one of the earlier movements and earliest of of pan-Africanism and black solidarity Marcus Garvey is a black nationalist um, and he sets up an organization called the United Negro Improvement Association. Thank you. There we go. The UNIA in 1914 to essentially bring people, quote unquote, back to Africa. And by people, I mean black people that are in America being persecuted by, you know, racism there um, and in the Caribbean, because the Caribbean Mm. then would have been ruled by uh, European governments, not, you know, black people necessarily, um, or people that really cared too much about the liberation of black people. And so, yeah, he created this movement um, and we see this kind of solidarity or we we see an attempt at solidarity um, between Africa and the Caribbean and African-Americans um, who would have been in America at the time. It was an interesting movement in a way because... So some people, well, I think a lot of people have critiqued Marcus Garvey, but um, his perspective, um, some people felt um, sort of erased the indigenous cultures of people um, in in the Caribbean and in America and all different parts of the world, this idea that everyone somehow can unite under one soul um, back in in the days that would have been Negro identity. Um, And even this idea that native africans people on the african continent are not yet civilized but marcus garvey could come and become i think the emperor of africa and then Mm. rule over sort of having an empire that could um rival the british empire which is interesting because it was sort of a decolonial mindset but with empire still at at the forefront if that makes sense yeah it's like his imagination stretched as far as black liberation but not as far as actually overthrowing the whole system yeah and it was a case that marcus garvey's his ships never sailed the black star line didn't ever go back to africa um and i think marcus garvey being he was jamaican um just for context um so started out in the caribbean um and i think he was probably most popular and most well followed and recognized in the united states um, and I think it might suggest the situation in the United States at that time needing um, some kind of movement back to Africa because, you know, black people had only found themselves in America due to transatlantic slavery. Whereas I think in the Caribbean, whilst his movement was still prominent and he's a national hero there now in Jamaica and he's on the money, literally, um, I think the movement might have had less significance there than it did in America where people were crying out for some kind of answer to the quote-unquote Negro problem as it was known at the time. Even on that, it's interesting that you say that um, Marcus Garvey's on the money because I think, I need to fact-check this, but it's either 
just during independence or um, t- now to this day, they had a mm. black star, I think, on a Ghanaian coin. And even mm. like the, 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 the flag of Ghana is um, um, uh, reminiscent of the Pan-African flag. But just but back to, to America, though, I think it's interesting how people in America viewed him differently. So famously, he had a feud with W.B. Du Bois. Um, because, um, and many people have many different ideas about what the root of the struggle was, but essentially Marcus Garvey felt that uh, within black nationalist politics, uh, dark skin or quote-unquote fully black people should be at the forefront as opposed to mixed people, and WB Du Bois came from a mixed uh, background. And so like just to put it into context so in the many parts of the caribbean and i think in jamaica as well light-skinned people tended to be at the upper milieu of society absolutely as opposed to dark-skinned people and one can make similar claims about the united states but mm-hmm. wb du bois felt that marcus garvey was trying to inject this sort of um intra-racial discord where there didn't need to be one wb du bois felt that um mixed race black people and um, non-mixed race black people were united in the United States and that Marcus Garvey was coming to try and uh, shake things off. I think at one point W.B. Du Bois called Marcus Garvey a traitor or and he might and like I think even in, like an idiot or an incompetent person or something like that it got quite heated at times. Yeah. There, beef. Um, but definitely the idea that there were different arguments and different ways that black people were trying to liberate themselves and each other and W.E. Boys, he is just kind of one of those examples in America. You've got people like, oh, his name's not coming to me, but it will at some point, who argued a kind of um, different way of liberating black people. I think that is the same thing as Britain today in a sense of people sometimes ask the questions, well, why are there so many West Africans in the Conservative Party um, when the Conservatives have a history of kind of racial comments and racism? Um, but if you know that is the political leanings of your country that you've come from before migration into Britain are going to have an impact on then how you want to liberate yourself potentially and practice your politics when you come to this country. I also think it's important to recognise as well because I think so because of social media I think people are more aware of black people when they call certain black people on the political right um, like Coons or Uncle Toms and what have you and people act like it's a modern phenomenon this idea that black people like throwing are throwing barbs at each other like it's just because of I don't know wokeism or whatever the new word is but realistically yeah. if you go back even back to W.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey or Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr these were all people yes. who had very very harsh words to say against one another yeah. black people often because we are a people who for a long period of time were oppressed um, mm-hmm. due to our race we all have different views about how to attain full liberation and I think that's where these sort of beefs or arguments come from and I think it'll be better sometimes for our political discourse for us to recognize that rather yeah. than pretend that oh black people are just insulting other black people on twitter because I don't know the, the political left told them to or something like it's it's a wider conversation than that yeah definitely and I just remembered it was Booker T Washington that W.E.B. Uh, boys used to to argue with a lot in terms of that movement and as you, you as you have correctly said it's not just a, a new social media phenomenon that we argue with other people about you know their political beliefs especially in regards to um, being black it's something that has happened and I think 
sometimes when you read back the debates because they weren't arguing over social media they were penning essays and writing yeah. speeches and arguing <laughs> in the halls those like some of the lines it's you're like oh okay like even Marcus Garvey's newspaper Negro World I think yeah. I can't remember what year exactly it was I think it might be 1924 they had the first page of Negro World saying WB Du Bois is a race traitor <laughs> like can you <laughs> exactly. imagine yeah absolutely no it's crazy and I think it was even I was thinking I think we're going to speak maybe a little bit about Ethiopia and Rastafarianism which kind of came out of Jamaica but Marcus Garvey criticized Halle Selassie um, and said yeah. that he was um, a coward and a traitor because in his land you know black men were being whipped um, and enslaved so even then you know his as the movement of like Rastafarianism grows um, and people are turning to Ethiopia um, and Ahali Selassie, you've got Marcus Garvey coming in with the criticism. I think Marcus Garvey seems to have quite a cantankerous personality. <laughs> yeah, cantankerous, especially because he marries, so he marries two women named Amy and so his first wife, but he, his second wife was his first wife's maid of honour. Like, how more, cantanker- how more cantankerous can you get than that? Imagine, you're, you're walking down the aisle, this woman is throwing flowers, and saying, oh my gosh, like crying at your wedding, saying, oh my gosh, I'm so happy for your love. Next year, she's married to your man. Can you imagine? Like, nothing wow. in the real housewives of any show has ever shown anything like that. This is why I just... History is fascinating to me. They don't teach you this at school, and they really should. Oh Honestly, no! I I yeah. actually would love to see like a reality TV show reenactment of some events in history. Like yes. people like turn to the camera like, I can't believe she did that. I called her <laughs> a broke Negro. She should know better. <laughs> Honestly, definitely. And even like as you brought up earlier, Malcolm X um, and Martin Luther King, those yes. clashes were fierce as well. And looking back at it as a, a black person in 2021 you kind of look back and think, well, nobody was necessarily wrong. You know, they they just saw the future of of black people in a different way and I think that I just I kind of find it fascinating actually that they can kind of envision such a different world but also them all being quite realistic in some ways um and so hopeful um so yeah I think that's really important we have exactly right with the people I guess the the West African-minded folks we were talking about earlier in the Conservative Party who believe yeah. that um, if we, well, I don't want to speak for all of them, but it seems the, the prominent ones seem to believe that if we uh, stop talking about race and racism, perhaps it'll go away. You know, that's mm. one perspective. We might critique that perspective. And yeah. there are other people like Black Lives Matter who believe that if we uh, defund the police, if we mm. uh, think about the hostile environment, if we um, teach more about colonial history, if we uh if we um get rid of things like no fees no funds which is another immigration Mm. policy we can create a better future for black people so we still see this throughout centuries even we could go back to like um the haitian revolution right there are people within the haitian revolution have different views about black what what the future would mean for black people and so i think that's why history is really important because you, you 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 get to understand that we've sort we we've played this level before, kind of like in yeah. a video game. We we've done this before, um, and it's it's important to catch that. No, I like that. I like that a lot. We have we've been here before in so yeah. many ways, <laughs> and a lot of people kind of look at that kind of comment of we've been here before as we fought these racist fights before, we fought these battles before, we've been to these protests before. But I think also we've had these, as you said, conversations with each other as black people. Um, before as well 
Yeah, interest. Very interesting. Right. I think we should move to Britain in a more okay. micro level, um, <laughs> and we can start with activism and organisations such as maybe the Black Panthers. And I put the Black Panthers on the list. Um, me and Shane, we kind of created a list together, by the way, just for you listeners. Um, so I had the Black Panthers on there um, because Shane originally said Olive Morris, who we're going to talk about in a second. Um, and the Black Olive Morris was one of the members of the Black Panther movement. It wasn't a party in Britain. Um, there's an episode on that if you want to know in more depth. And I will be plugging episodes throughout this because we're referencing a lot of things that we've already talked about. Um, and so within the Black Panther movement, I found it very interesting because even though it was um, established in 1969, which we would have seen, you know, majority of um, Caribbean uh, migrants settling and the, that Windrush generation and their their families by that point coming over. That's where we start seeing some of the activism and education because their children are now in schools, their wives have come over to join them. Because I think 1963, we see the Commonwealth Immigration Act, which restricts the movement of people. So a lot of people kind of came into the country before that law was passed. And so surprising for me was the kind of the mix of people from West Africa and also people from the Caribbean that made up the Black Panther movement. Um, so we have four, um, I was going to say four for the Caribbean side. <laughs> We've got people like um, Darkest House comes from Trinidad. We've got Linton Kwesi Johnson, Neil Kenlock, the photographer, um, Althea Jones, a coin from Trinidad as well, I believe. Um, and then we've also got yep. Asian people too, which is just adding a whole other dimension. But I will mention from Gandhi and Marla Sen, absolutely. <laughs> um, and then from West Africa, we've got people like Obi Akbuna. Uh, we've got David Udo, who I was trying to find information about. And I honestly was coming up to brick wall after brick wall. And I just wished I'd been able to get to the library to potentially do some more research on him um, because it was I was stumped at so many different levels. Um, but, yeah, you've got these people that have started um, the Black Panther movement, seeing a need for liberation in the 60s and following this idea of black power that we've kind of imported in from America um, and the Black Panthers there. And I just thought it was interesting that it w- it wasn't like some of the movements that would have Caribbean in the name or African in the name, like um, like the African Student Union um, of a bit earlier or like the uh, Caribbean Workers Association. It was specifically just the kind of Black Panthers. And I feel like that pulls then more from America's Black Power as opposed to necessarily uh, liberation movements in Africa or the Caribbean more specifically. That is interesting, actually like thinking about names right because you have the legal colored people I think back in I'm gonna get the date wrong maybe the 20s the 20s yeah so it's interesting I guess at different points of history there are there's this need to have a sort of sort of pan-Africanist or 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 united organizations and then also need to have separate organizations as well because I think we still do see this to some extent today we we do have movements like black lives matter um or even stuff like uh sister space um or even um the black is it that there's a there's a institute for women who've suffered from domestic violence set up by asian women south hall black sisters sisters, yeah yeah, (laughs) this idea so that but then also at the same time we have various different Nigerian forums, Jamaican forums, Trinidad, Trinidadian forums in the UK, Ghanaian yeah. forums. So I guess we, we have 
again, maybe <laughs> we're playing the same video game level. We we <laughs> see um, these organisations which are united and then separate, and perhaps there's a space for both. Perhaps there is space for both. Um, but with the British Black Panther, with the British Black Panther movement, what you say is really really interesting, right? Because Obi Egbuna becomes the first leader, I believe, yeah, of the is. of the British Black Panther movement. Um, before he gets, I think, arrested. Um, yes. <laughs> and I think that's really interesting because, as you say, a lot of the Caribbean population in Britain had settled or were um more settled, I guess, than the West African population in Britain. So it's interesting yeah. that upon arriving, um, fairly recently in Britain, Obi Egbuna felt the need to, um at the forefront of this movement which yeah, definitely. I'm not sure perhaps what that tells us we could say maybe that Nigeria just ended its well was in, in throes of civil war at the time so maybe he had a radical perspective coming from Nigeria um, I think he did he, um, he had a Marxist leaning um, and he kind of was his ideas were linked in and kind of thinking about the importance of like international struggle against capitalism, which fits yeah. more into like Walter Rodney and, and that kind of idea. Um, yeah, he, capitalist oppression was his his thing. And I think, well, obviously the Black Panthers are, are quite a Marxist and left-leaning movement. And if it's following on from America, then obviously that that's going to continue in Britain. Maybe his political leanings in that Marxist tradition really does just kind of, not discredit or remove any like nationalist ideologies but the fact that Marxist was kind of his strongest identifying factor because I find that I keep saying about Walter Rodney I'm actually obsessed with him but he was a similar he he moved between the Caribbean different countries in Africa and he was quite involved with Marxism and didn't necessarily focus on his specific home country of Guyana or Jamaica where he went to university or Mm. London so maybe it was this political kind of leaning that was taking precedence over nationality or, or race. Yeah, I think so. And even take, taking precedent over race, again, is an interesting conversation because with a lot of these movements in sort of the late 60s, 70s, 80s, for better or, wor- for better or for worse, we start talking about political blackness because yeah. um, this movement, although it's interesting, I think from all the photos I've seen, um, I've seen predominantly black people and then I think Farouk Dondi in the photos yeah. but um, through the sort of through the documents that we have of the British Black Panther movement it was basically anyone who was non-white mm-hmm. um, could define as part of their movement yeah, which is interesting definitely. yeah which is interesting because we've we seem to have moved away from that quite a lot we definitely in have. the present day even there was a whole maybe it's not good to keep bringing it back to Twitter but I remember when mm-hmm. um we didn't quite know how um, Black Lives Matter in the UK was set up after they got all yeah. their funding, um, all their donations. And then there were a lot of people on Twitter saying, oh, it's politically black, it's politically black. Um, mm. And we have all this. We have a very different perspective, I think, than older generations did about yeah, who can definitely. define as black, which is interesting. Absolutely. I think as well, it, it kind of linked to who was being racially oppressed and that was everyone that was not white. And so for Asians, they quite seamlessly fit into that. Um, also, a big wave of, of Indian people came from Africa, from East Africa, from Kenya, yeah. during the um, kind of conflict that was happening there. And so I think it was when OAD formed, which is Organisation of Women of African Descent, as it started, but then changed to African and Asian descent. Because if you're saying it's a woman from 
you know, of African descent, their argument was that, well, we are from, we have come from Africa. We've literally come off a plane <laughs> from Africa. Even though we are Indian and Asian, um, we are still facing, you know, the same kind of issues that you are in Britain. And also because OAD started with roots in liberation of African countries and they were doing exactly that work, it fit, they fit seamlessly into OAD. Um, and then you could kind of argue as time went on, it, it was one of the reasons they broke up because, um, all of the kind of divisions and different needs of groups of people began to change. Um, but I think in the first instance, it wasn't just black people in Britain that were being racially targeted. And because Asian people were being racially targeted in a very similar way, it was easier and probably safer to fight under one umbrella because I don't yeah. know, safety in numbers, you know, we were not here in big numbers at that point. So we're still not. <laughs> no, absolutely. I think they all genuinely just felt they had to fight together not to oversimplify any of their thoughts or, or reasons, but I think that kind of stemmed from that, to be fair. Yeah, and it's interesting, um, speaking to some older Asian people who still identify as Black, I was speaking to the um, journalist Yasmin Alibi Brown the other day, yeah. um, who... Um, we had a, a, a like a cordial disagreement because I think she she thinks that there still should be this understanding of all non-white people of being black, yeah. and I guess that perhaps shows a different mentality amongst the generations because because I was saying that perhaps um, you know black people today for our generation means people primarily of African descent, but Yasmin was saying that you know she's originally from Uganda. Is she not yeah. of African descent? Um, is saying that she's not of African descent is that a similar thing to um, yeah. white people in England telling us that we don't really belong we're not we can never be British that sort of thing yeah, so I definitely. think it's interesting hearing from that perspective it is really interesting and, yeah, and even with this podcast actually I've struggled sometimes to think like how far and how much maybe Asian history do I want to include um, yeah how far do I want to include the histories of Asian people in Britain and, and does that then detract from what we're trying to do with black history yeah it's I've had these <laughs> it's I really it's complicated. complicated story because I think um I think what's important to remember about black liberation struggles and again I'll start from um enslavement onwards it's like black people have always had like a transnational uh support for one another whether we're thinking about the end of slavery civil rights decolonization end of apartheid black people have always been um supporting other black people of, of yeah. course like you have black people who don't support other black people but i'm talking that's just generally black people have always been supporting other black people and but even within that we have had and all those movements from enslavement civil rights um decolonization end of apartheid we've had other groups involved and having solidarity with us as well um, and that's the the interesting thing about this conversation, I think, because for parts of our history, black people in the Caribbean, black people in Africa and black people in Britain and even I think in the United States have had solidarity with different groups of Asian people. And then at the same time, have had hostilities with different groups of Asian people. Yeah. And so I guess it's working out our, our place in all of that. Right. Um, because there are still people to this day um, um, who feel that well I guess there could be a whole different conversation about anti-blackness within Asian communities but who feel that um you know we should get rid of political blackness yeah. because uh Asian people the, the feeling is that some Asian people um are prejudiced towards black people and even there's a whole conversation about Asian people who've come from East Africa yeah. and then that whole conversation about if somebody from East Africa 
is prejudice towards you, how much of that is linked to what was going on in East Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, I feel like I've just gone off a tangent, but I just think it's an interesting no, conversation is, about solidarity is, and pain. Yeah, of course, of course. And then just to throw an extra spanner in that works, you've got the Caribbean that in some countries like Trinidad, Jamaica, you have quite large populations of Indian people and Chinese people. That like have, Guyana in particular. Yeah, yes, that was it. Guyana, Trinidad and yeah, Jamaica. I think Guyana's the biggest numbers in that order because of indentured labour um, after slavery and the same with Chinese people as well. And, you know, we've seen that um, there is a lot of anti-black sentiment in Asian communities. How then we look at the Caribbean as this, I hate the term melting pot, but it, it does fit very well. as kind of a melting pot of all these different types of people um, and then even looking at that list of some of the British Black Panthers who would be maybe uh, Indo-Caribbean as opposed yeah. to Afro-Caribbean um, and how they fit, you know, walking down the street at that time, say, for example, let's say Black men, Black women would be subject to police brutality, um, sus laws. If you were Indo-Caribbean or Afro-Caribbean, I don't think the police would matter. You would still probably get stopped and searched. You would still be treated um, ill. Um, it, because of the way you look. And I don't like to to kind of boil blackness down to the way you look or how much melanin you have, or, you know, in, it's weird to kind of relate it to how you might negatively be perceived by someone like the police at that time, um, as opposed yeah. to some other kind of factor. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a big complicated kind of situation, I'd say, when we're thinking even, about race. Even the thought you've just introduced, I think is interesting because I think it goes back to even the debates between Marcus Garvey and um, W.E. Du Bois is that how do we want to define blackness? Do we define blackness as a joint struggle or do we define blackness as, I don't know, something else more positive? Yeah, Um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. is our blackness going to just be rooted in struggle? Because that is quite negative. It's a conversation I've had a few times and I I, I don't get closer to reaching a conclusion in my mind at all yeah I guess maybe that is a way of looking at struggle in a positive way alternatively in that we have found community in that struggle true um would we feel affinity to to black people who are not from the exact same country that we are if we didn't have this sense of a joint struggle if you get what I mean exactly yeah no I do definitely it has it has unified us um, in ways we would not have otherwise probably been. Um, interesting. Right. Let's move on slightly. Only a year later to Olive Morris, um, 1969. Um, Prepared for this segment. I've got um, a paragraph of when the incident was discussed in the House of Commons, which wow. is interesting. Um, and it's interesting that the language that they used to describe this Nigerian diplomat is interesting. So Olive Morris was born in Jamaica in 1953. And she came over to the UK at the age of eight. So around the same time of what you were talking about earlier with the new, with news of the new Commonwealth Immigrants Act, um, many people in the UK and many people just in the Caribbean decided to come um, to the UK during that time so they wouldn't fall foul of the new act. Um, And she grows up in the UK. Um, She's a very outspoken young woman. And one day in 1969, she sees a Nigerian diplomat, diplomat, a man called Clement Gomwalk being beaten by the police or this was her perception that he was being beaten by the police who had thought that um, he had stolen his car which was a Mercedes Mercedes Benz 
Um, there are different conversations about what precisely happened. So whether Olive Morris um, like intervened whilst the police were beating Clement Gomwalt or what Clement's Gomwalt or whether she uh, got there later on when Clement wasn't there. But what is known is that she was fined £10. She was stripped and beaten by police and allegedly threatened with rape um, after her arrest. And she was given a suspended um, jail sentence. Um, and so perhaps we could talk about like many of the things going on there. But what I thought was interesting was because Clement Gomwalk was a Nigerian diplomat, this was big news, right? Because how can you be um, assaulting a Nigerian diplomat? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was discussed in the House of Commons and the then Home Secretary, who later became the Prime Minister, a Labour Prime Minister. So the then Home Secretary said that um, police inquiries took place on the morning of the 15th of November about a car which was causing a serious obstruction in a waiting area in Brixton. The licence plate bore a different number from the road fund licence disc and there was a possibility that the vehicle might have been stolen. Mr. Gomwalk, who was not at this stage known to be a diplomat, returned the car and refused to give any explanation of the ownership. During questioning by the police, a hostile crowd gathered, a struggle took place, and in order to prevent a breach of the peace, Mr. Gomwalk was arrested and then taken to Brixton Police Station. His identity and entitlement to diplomatic community were established while he was there, and he was released. In the meantime, a disturbance developed as a result of which six other persons were arrested. So yeah. a lot going on yeah. there. I think it's interesting how I think it's interesting how the Home Secretary says a hostile crowd gathered as though that there was like sort of no reason for them to be hostile. Um yeah. and a struggle took place. What is the struggle? Olive Morris describes somebody being beaten up, but yeah. the Home Secretary is describing it as a struggle. Which is mm, yeah. interesting. It is. The use of language is there uh, very interesting. Um but I just it's interesting that it's like and not to oversimplify this, you know, young woman from Jamaica seeing or not seeing, as the reports have suggested, um, this diplomat from Nigeria, um, you know, having a problem, potentially a struggle, um, being <laughs> beaten. Um, and she steps in or doesn't step in, or it, but it's part of that. Um, and it does link then um, the situation and, well, institutional racism within the police because... She would not have been treated like that if she was not a black woman and the diplomat would not have been treated like that if he had not been a black man. Um, And how I think in a way we're kind of, again, linking this solidarity at a point of struggle, at a point of tension with the police um, in in Brixton in 1969. I remember that Olive was only five foot two as well. And according to reports, (laughs) she was either 16 or 17 at the time of the incident, whatever the age, whether she was 16 or 17, that's very, very young to be stepping in to in a confrontation with police people who have like batons and stuff definitely and my my apologies for calling her a young woman she is a girl she's a young girl at 16 um so yeah yeah it is it is very interesting especially because I think and I think we have to talk about this at some point um because she's Jamaican and he's Nigerian and you know, the tensions seem to be most tense between Jamaicans and Nigerians at different points in our social history of this country um, and otherwise. And I think it being, you know, Jamaicans tending to be the biggest and probably um, most well-known Caribbean country. um, And I think Nigerians in Britain, yeah, being so um, 
larger numbers um, in terms of migration here. So them being, again, a loud voice um, representing uh, Africa. Um, and so, yeah, you've got these two very strong and dominant countries with a lot of national pride um, and global influence at this kind of point in 1969 where we have um, young girl Olive Morris um, kind of jumping in at the defence of the Nigerian diplomat, which is when you kind of lay out all like that and, and what happens next with her kind of being harassed and, you know, verbally abused and stripped and, and threatened um, is quite horrifying in, in more ways than one, I'd say. It really is. And I think just the fact that she was so young doing so is is a testament to her character and also perhaps indicates why people still talk about her today. Unfortunately, she died very, very young of cancer in her late 20s. But, you know, there's been a Google Doodle about her and all the books about Black British women's history she's mentioned um, due to her tireless activism on the part on the behalf of Black people everywhere, which I think is important. And even the conversation about um, people from Jamaica versus people from Nigeria and the different, uh, I guess, hostilities we have had. I think it's interesting to note that at um, the at Jamaicans and at Jamaica's Independence Day celebrations, there were people from Nigeria there, like Nigerian diplomats of a, of a different form, there to celebrate with them. And if I'm not mistaken, there's even a place in Jamaica called Abeakuta after the place in Nigeria. Um, and we've and we've seen, as we've seen in your podcast and, and other and other places that you could get this history, that um, you know, we've had organizations in Britain which have had West African and West Indian solidarity. So Jamaicans and um Nigerians involved, like like the legal colour people back in the day. So I think it is important to recognize that whilst we may have these hostilities sometimes mm-hmm. um we do get together when the going mm-hmm. gets rough i guess because yes yeah, yeah, it's the whole thing of at the end of the day if you're going to be impacted by white supremacy if you're going to be impacted by a ra- if you're going to be assaulted by a racist person they're mm-hmm. not going to ask for your nationality card no, um, absolutely definitely I really like as well, um, just to pull out the point you made about, um, you know, being present at each of those Independence Day celebrations. Um, and that isn't a moment of struggle. That's a moment of celebration and of, of yeah. pride. Um, and kind of looking outside of the context of Britain, the kind of solidarity that Nigeria and Jamaica, just to take those two countries, have. They've got 50 years, I think, of diplomatic relations. They celebrated last year. Um, they have ambassadors to each of those countries. And there is now, I think, a flight you can get directly from Nigeria to Jamaica, which is the first of its kind. There aren't many flights that go from Africa into the Caribbean directly without having to stop over in Europe or America first. And so, Absolutely. you know, maybe whilst we're here grumbling and arguing on Twitter about different, you know, silly things in regards to, to Caribbean and, and African culture, you know, our home countries are actually making strides to have better diplomatic relations. Um, yeah, the solidarity. And I did have a look and I just looked at Jamaica because I didn't have time to do it for all Caribbean countries. But I'm just going to read you a quick list of all the countries you can go to as a Jamaican citizen, visa free in Africa. Niger, Ghana, Gambia, Namibia, Botswana, Uganda, South Africa, Zambia, Lesotho, Tanzania, Kenya, Malawi, Nigeria. I don't believe you need a pass. You don't need a visa, sorry, for any of those countries from just Jamaica. Um, And I think that Caribbean passports tend to kind of carry the same weight. So the fact that these countries without us here in the diaspora are, are linking up and 
at a point of celebration, not at a point of um, struggle necessarily, um, to to create links, dip- diplomatic links, trade links um, is wonderful to see, I think. Um, and I'm sure Walter Rodney, whose book I have here and we haven't yet mentioned, I've mentioned him so many times, we haven't even spoken about him, um, or we might not actually have time to, um, is maybe we'd be proud of um Marcus Garvey would be proud of her. Yes. (laughs) At several different points in time, what black people were arguing for sounded ludicrous to many people in power, right? This idea that segregation would end, this idea that empire would end, this idea that um, slavery would end. All of these things sounded silly to many people in power, but yet they happened. And so I think we need to remind ourselves of that that's not to say that all ideas that black people ever come up with are incredible ideas that should never be criticized but Mm. I think it's important to recognize that the good ideas do uh stand the test of time and despite rhetoric from politicians at the end of the day things will happen if they're meant to happen exactly definitely and I just like that note of hope I think that you know what we once saw as impossible was possible um and I think that might be a beautiful note for us to end on (laughs) because we have we've spoken for so long and I think we've dropped so many gems um loosely centered around the historical context um of of different points of Afro-Caribbean solidarity and I think we could go on for days there were things on on um, our list that we didn't get around to talking to listeners in fact just just uh links one thing on our list because we were talking about Jamaican and Nigerian solidarity as in the countries not necessarily us as the diaspora Mm. kids in the UK but I think we can really really see that with the um, boycott of the 1986 Commonwealth Games in Mm. Edinburgh where all the black countries and some well I think all the black countries maybe most (laughs) I know that there was an issue with Bermuda where they didn't take part in the boycott first but then they later withdrew Um, but I think let's say the vast majority of the black commonwealth countries and a couple of asian commonwealth countries yeah. pulled out of those commonwealth games in support of in support of a boycott against apartheid africa because they felt like yeah. margaret thatcher's government wasn't doing enough to send a message to south africa that apartheid was wrong and so i think it is important to recognize again that solidarity between our communities and many other communities has lasted for a very very long time yeah and it probably will hopefully going forward definitely and there's power in that because who were to say that all these you know small islands um and countries in in the landmass of africa could could you know step out of, of world games that their athletes would have needed to to progress in their careers and whatnot to make a stand against margaret thatcher's government which is you know head of empire in 1986 I know most countries would have been independent by then but still for them to kind of step out on a limb and do that for South Africa their brothers and sisters there um is yeah it is the vision isn't it of 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 what we want of of black solidarity I think we really do need to remember that and I think on that note we shall say goodbye so (laughs) tell me where should the people find you I'm going to assume on Twitter somewhere because (laughs) the Twitter discourse is popping um, yeah, let us know like, where to find you. Um, anything you're working on, projects wise, podcasts, work, writing. Let us know. I need to stop getting my news from Twitter, but my Twitter, <laughs> my Twitter profile is at Sean Speaks. That's at S E U N S P E A K S S. Sean Speaks. 
I also have a podcast called the Hello from Britain podcast, a black British history podcast, because I think it's important to learn more about black British women. Even we were talking today, I think you mentioned, I think, um, David Uda, right? You, you found mm-hmm. it difficult to find out more about him. Um, and I think just generally, I think there's a limited amount of information out there about black British women in particular. So hopefully mm-hmm. through that podcast, people will find some resources to go and look at. Aside from and it's that, a fantastic I, podcast. Oh, oh thank God. you. So if you yeah. haven't if you haven't already listened, head over there ASAP. Thank you very much. And aside from that, I write regularly in Galdem. So look out for me in Galdem, I guess, if you if you enjoy their website, which is a great website. Um so yeah, that's me. Thank you so much. Honestly, it's been a pleasure to have you and talk about all things solidarity, blackness, race, Twitter, the video <laughs> game analogy is one I'll never forget might feature in a future essay from me um but it is true you know these movements and these moments are are continuing cyclically and and in patterns and and repetitions and so be interesting maybe we should come back and have this conversation in like five years time and see if anything's changed or 10 yeah we have to remember (laughs) these solidarity moments like beyond when Black Panther comes on tv or beyond when um some you know something terrible happens as we said like mm-hmm. our identity is not rooted in oppression but can also be rooted in celebration and so Absolutely. I think it's important that we recognize this solid solidarity at all times um yeah, not totally. just yeah definitely thank you so much for coming onto the episode and to all the listeners please do follow us on twitter instagram LinkedIn, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, whichever one you use to listen to podcasts. Um, And I hope you've enjoyed the episode and have a wonderful week. Thank you all for listening. Goodbye.